Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jane Backett. Jane is a banking and asset finance partner at the leading UK law firm, Field Fisher, where her practice specializes in real estate finance transactions. Jane has a deep experience of mentoring and training junior lawyers and is passionate about diversity. Jane previously contributed as a columnist to the Above the Law, where she wrote about a number of topics, including her perspective as a female partner and working mother at a large firm. So a very, very big welcome, Jane. Hi, Rob. Thanks for that. Yep. Great to be here. Pleasure to pleasure to have you on the show. And before we go through all the amazing work and everything you've achieved to date, we must start with our customary icebreaker question on the show, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Suits in terms of its reality? Oh, it's really high. I love Suits. Um, a good nine and a half, I think. It's definitely one of my favourite shows. There we go. It's nice for a, a partner to give it a high score for once. Um, I guess it's is, is that more because you're just a fan of the show versus the actual reality? Or, or are you one of these people who's going to say, do you know what, it gets knocked a lot, but there is some truth to it? Uh, they did a really good character study. I mean, a character like Lewis Lipt, for example, there's definitely one of those at every law firm, if you ask me. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> So before we go through um, your legal journey, we like to start at the beginning with with all of our guests. So tell us a bit about your family background and and upbringing. Uh, So, yeah, thanks. I um, come from a very much working class family background. Uh, My dad was a builder, sadly, he's died now. Um, But yeah, he uh, was a builder and a roofer. So he used to go out all hours and, and, you know, Christmas Day. I remember him working a lot. But he was also, um, you know, a bit of an entrepreneur. He'd always worked for himself. He knew how to build businesses and um, he knew how to turn properties around from sort of, you know, run down places into something um, much more amazing, which is such a big thing these days. You look at, you know, the renovation cult that there is out there. And and he was doing that, um, you know, back in the 70s when it, it wasn't such a big thing to do, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, that's where I probably got my interest in the property side of, of what I do. But yeah, I grew up, um, I went to, you know, state schools. I went to a state comp um, down, I lived down on the coast in a place called Deal in Kent, my secondary school. And yeah, I mean, I had a a, a good time down there. It was a nice upbringing, um, but, you know, very simple. We lived a very sort of simple life. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. So uh, that totally makes sense in terms of your practice from a sort of property real estate perspective. So where did the the legal ambition come from then? Did did you always want to be a lawyer or where where did that interest spark from? Um, I think I always really liked English. So I had, you know, I was much more a words person than a a mathematician, which is probably typical of a lot of lawyers as well. you know, we're always saying things like, well, don't show me the spreadsheet. So um, so I think from that side, the words and the English side of it, the law was appealing, really sort of 
probably took a lot of it again from my dad I remember him suggesting that it would be a great career and also telling me that just because I was from a background where no one else in the family went to university there was no reason that I should think that I couldn't go to university he was always very ambitious um you know again back to him but he'd, he'd sort of dragged himself out of a, a lifestyle of, of you know family which were living in council houses and had you know been in the Margaret Thatcher generation of buying privately and and um that sense of ownership and that sense of working for yourself and and having something um to be really proud of so he was very much of the view that I should not think that there were any boundaries of what I could do so him suggesting that I might become a lawyer was to him you know perfectly normal and you know thing that I should be capable of doing Brilliant. It sounds like a real role model for you as well as a, a father and somebody who's always pushed you. So that's that's a really nice story. And thanks for sharing that. So to the more of the present, um, as you may know, you know, banking law is typically a, a male centric practice area. What made you choose to qualify into sort of banking and, and sort of asset finance? Um, it's funny you say that. I, I started, uh, I was at Mayor Brown for 11 years and I trained there and I started uh, my first seat in the property department. And I thought, given my my background and my dad's sort of career, I thought that property would be exactly the thing I wanted to do. And um, I just found that actually I wasn't quite as um, into that side of it as the bit where I next went, which was into the banking team at, at Mayor Brown, where they were doing lots of international transactions um you know big deals high profile staff making the paper working um culturally slightly differently to the property team you know banking teams it's sort of uh, slightly glitzier i think sometimes um so i was lured by lots of that i think and i just really enjoyed my time in that team and it was um again it was a very entrepreneurial team it was taken over by guys called Bruce and Dominic and they transformed it to some extent into I think what it probably is now um and it was very dynamic so I just really enjoyed my time there brilliant okay and moving sticking with that sort of theme um why do you think that areas such as banking have so few female partners I think it's a tough it's a very tough culture um and it's you know when you look at the banking industry again that's always been very male dominated so you're a service provider to that industry and therefore the expectations put upon you um come from probably quite a patriarchal place um you know the working hours of bankers i don't know if you've seen the the show industry yes i have <laughs> Yet, um but it's you know it's not much that was set in the mayor brown offices actually uh, some of it. Um, it's not that much different. Um, so you are beholden to people who work all hours, who expect their lawyers and their other service providers to be out, you know, in the drinking culture on the scene. And I wouldn't say that it was in any way not open to women to join in to that culture, but it's difficult if you're not used to some of that to actually break in or to know how to to operate in um, those parameters. And it's difficult to know, you know, to not be intimidated by it, I would say. 
Yeah, that's really good advice. And thanks for, for, for sharing that. And in terms of, you know, one of your notable achievements is you you also made equity um, at Field Fisher, I believe, last May, which is very, very exciting. And you're now part of a small group of women under 40 that have made equity, which is fantastic achievement. Tell us about how you achieved that. And as a secondary point, um, why do you think so few women have made equity as well? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and thank you. It is, I think, back to the same points uh, that are a theme here, which is that you have to be prepared to be networking early on in your career. Um, I think people sometimes when they're junior underestimate the value of long term networking. You know, a lot of the people that I know or that became clients were people that I'd met or they were in the same network as people I've met 10 or 12 years before. So it's a long game. And unless you place that value early on networking and people, um, and I've always been very much about it being a people business um, and a client service business and very client service orientated, unless you have that attitude, I think it's difficult to then one day turn around and say, right, I want to to be a partner and I want to be really successful because you've got such a lead in time to, to, to doing all of that. So definitely about networks. I've learned so, so much in my, let's say, 15 years from, from being a trainee to, to now and uh, my temperament's different. My ability to navigate politics is different my attitude to how to handle crises or how to handle difficult situations is so different and and even different to the day I stepped into Phil Fisher um four years ago really four and a bit years ago just it's such a huge learning curve the job you learn something every day and every week that you practice so um you have to be prepared to be open-minded and resilient and constantly able to adapt and learn I think Rob yeah no some really good nuggets of um, wisdom shared there so thanks for that and I I love that sort of networking because that's a key theme that we talk about throughout the show um, and the importance of it so it's great that someone who's been so successful that's talking about that from early on the value of doing that so thanks so much for sharing that and then I guess if you were to highlight one piece of advice from your own experiences you would give to women who have aspirations of making equity partnership at a a major firm or even a you know a high street firm what what would you what piece of advice would you give to them I would say go out and read some sales books um that's exactly sounds really corny I'm sure but like that's exactly what I did when I decided I was going to take the partnership at Phil Fisher um I thought you can never be a good enough salesperson this is a sales job people don't like to it's a profession so people can be um you know, a little bit snobby about it. But I went out and I read a few different sales books and a few different kind of uh, management or people management type um, books. And I think the sales aspects really uh, held firm for me. I followed some of the principles of what I read and those things definitely worked as a formula. You know, there's part Um, art and part science involved in sales and the science bit and and the formula bit of how much you have to repeat your message how often you need to get your name out there how you need to use different platforms to do that 
you know, how important face-to-face meetings are and follow-ups and all of that stuff. Um, you know, if you just take some percentage of nuggets of, of those things that you read, then you're going to hopefully be more successful than the next person that's not following any of that. And I'm just loving that you've said that because that's talking my language. Obviously, as a salesperson, I've been involved in recruitment, lots of businesses. And, you know, ultimately, you know, business development is, is a key core skill set as any, any, any sort of partner as you grow through your career. And ultimately, you need to have that fundamental understanding of how commercial sales work. So it's really good that you, you, you kind of highlighted that on top of obviously being technically very good at the law and, and what you do, because it's great at being very book smart, but you've also got to be commercial smart and turn that into conversions and winning clients, fostering relationships and all of that great stuff. So yeah, love that. So you've, you've achieved a lot. Um, alongside being a partner, you're also a proud mother. Tell us about navigating your journey uh, into motherhood. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I say this to a lot of team members that I work with and colleagues, you know, there's never a right time uh, in your career, in this career in particular, to decide to have children. Um, Although (laughs) I must say that lockdown seems to have sparked a few pregnancies. Um, (laughs) But but, um, yeah, there's never a perfect time because you're always going to worry, am I going to miss out on, you know, this opportunity or that opportunity or uh, clients and contacts going to forget about me? I think I decided that I wanted that to be part of my life um, relatively early on. So I, you know, I tried not to, I tried to think of the career as a marathon and not to let that get in the way. And I knew that I wanted more than one child as well, because I, I have siblings, but they're 20 odd years older than me. So I, I was almost raised as an only child. And I, I missed that having a sibling relationship. So I wanted that for my children. Um, so I had two. I've got a daughter, Grace, who's 10, and a son who was eight just this week um, called Zach. Ah. So, yeah, it's it's been a happy time. And I always think don't, you know, I've seen so many successful women who've got big families, you know, three or four children, and they've still made a massive success of their career because you can step in and step out and then back in again if you have the right support networks around you yeah i think that's a, a really good point is it's, it's almost you, you talked about networking earlier but also as you advance through your career having the right support in all aspects of your life is so 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 important um you know it's all sounded plain sailing thus far but you know business in the business world it's not and there are lots of knockbacks and there are lots of challenges so what have been you know, the biggest challenges you faced when balancing your busy banking and finance practice and being a working mother? There's lots of challenges. Um, You know, I think when I started at Phil Fisher, one of the challenges is that um, I'd come into a new firm as a lateral hire. Nobody knew who I was or whether I I didn't even know whether I would, you know, make a go of it. Um, It was throwing balls in the air. And so I didn't have a team structure around me. I didn't have the loyalty of people who I'd worked alongside for a long time. Um, And I had to build and earn that trust of the team as well as trying to bring in clients and service them. And I think I have to say that that was very stressful because once I did start to bring in work, and it did take a little while to get going, but once I did start to bring in work, I then found that it quickly accelerated beyond <laughs> the boundaries of the of the team that um, I had around me and working out, you know, not having previously been a partner and working out 
alongside my other partners at Phil Fisher how to resource this these new deals and you know put a finger in the wind and say what the pipeline you know would look like and how long it would sustain itself and all of those things you know you're making guesstimates all of the time um as to how to run the business and I think I'm sure anyone in a similar business um will understand those challenges yeah no absolutely and and thanks so much once again for 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 sharing that and then for you know um mothers returning to work in the law what one piece of advice would you give to them yeah i would say um you know come come back the thing i've said and i've, I've shouted it in <laughs> shouted it i don't shout much anymore but you know i've shouted it loudly in partner meetings is you know just get people back i remember back to dominic griffiths at mayor brown the one thing that you know, I'm really so grateful to him for is that when I'd had my first child, he said, just come back. Doesn't matter how many days, you know, how many days you want to work at home. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter um, if you want to do one day a week, five days a week, you know, whatever you want. And I thought there were probably hardly anybody in the city around that time in 2010 or 11 that were saying those things to their employees. And, you know, what an inspiration to be able to think I had the flexibility to just come back and I think he was absolutely right and he did that for many of the women in that team at the time or through those years where he just encouraged them to step back on in whatever form that looked like and yeah he's an absolute inspiration and I try and and carry that through and just say to the women or the men now going out you know just can't just come back it doesn't matter um you know we'll make it work but not everybody has that you know, that much of an open mind about it or that longer term view of if you get people to step back on, they'll probably want to do a bit more and, you know, feed back in as they can. No, that's a really good point. And it kind of mirrors what you're saying earlier around support. I think, you know, support comes under also, you know, supportive leadership. And that is just a great example um, of really genuine supportive leadership. And, you know, that's done wonders and testament to what you've gone on to achieve as well. So, yeah, that's a really good example. Thanks for, for sharing that. You know, we are living um, in, a, in a pandemic. How has the pandemic affected that, that sort of balance and how has it made it more challenging for you? It's interesting because um, when I did go back after maternity leaves, the first time I didn't really take too much um, flexibility. But the second time after my second child, I ended up working two days a week at home each week. And I absolutely loved it. It was the best thing ever. And it was a perfect balance. And it, it was one of the things that made me really um, reluctant to leave Mayor Brown. And it was um, you know, a very tricky thing to have to weigh up about giving up to then move um, to take a partnership at Phil Fisher but but I did that and I went back to working five days in the office at Phil Fisher for the following uh, three and a half four years and then of course this hits and we're now working you know completely remotely most of the time albeit uh, during some of 2020 I was going in once or twice a week sometimes but um, it's it's you know the other extreme <laughs> and um, it's made me really realized that I had undervalued that time in the office and I actually like some time in the office and I liked so much the balance of you know two or three days um in or you know three days in two out or two days in and three out was perfect in terms of managing family life and career and uh, five days for me 
working at home drives me up the wall I can't can't bear that much of my own company so <laughs> the irony of the, seeing it yeah all I think extremes. you speak for the masses there not the few so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks uh, for that and um you, you've told us that you know social mobility is something you're extremely passionate about as, as well and something we are on the show at the Levy Speaking Podcast. So, so tell us more about this and what does Field Fisher do to help social mobility? Yeah, thanks, Rob. I mean, yes, I'm massively passionate about it. I think from the early parts of, of this chat, you'll probably understand why. I, I don't come from a naturally privileged background. Um, you know, I had to, my parents had to work, my dad had to work really hard um, to get us into a good position where I didn't come out of university with any debt, but that was through pure hard work. And I've always had that backbone of really wanting to work, to work hard and to, you know, get to the next level or, you know, um, make something better. Um, so I think that I, I think that most of the issues with the lack of diversity in the profession traditionally has been that sort of um, issue with social mobility a lot of people come from very different backgrounds where they're caring for family members and they don't have that luxury of having the the space and the time and the money to go off and and study and so I'm hugely passionate about finding ways um for people that that don't have the the resources to go to university or to take all that time to study to be able to access the job and that's why at Phil Fisher we are We've just launched um, a new apprenticeship scheme where you can come in, you know, from age 18 and, and train up over the course of six or so years. And you can get to the same outcome uh, from from there. You don't have to have, have gone through those traditional steps. Um, but still, we believe in that that apprenticeship. And I think it's likely um, our provider would be University of Law. And, and we believe in the University of Law to provide excellent quality of education for those apprentices. So I it would not surprise me, especially with the apprentice levy, whether we heavily, um, you know, end up going down that route for recruiting. And, you know, the traditional model for trainees is changing, it's evolving. We've now got the SQE to train people, um, uh, which is sort of, a, for people that don't know, a form of super exam like you have in New York, uh, New York bar. And it's different, you know, that that was to some extent supposed to be designed to to bring about a bit more diversity and to take the pressure off of system and firms just you know only having a limited number of training contracts that they might be able to give out each year creating an elitism now you can do two years of any kind of legal uh, training or you know paralegaling and then sit the super exam the SQE and qualify so it's working out different ways to access the profession and, and I really hope that over the course of the coming years it changes the access to the profession for people yeah, no, and I, I absolutely echo that. And it is great that you touched on the the SQE there um, as well. It's it's certainly not come without lots of debates um, and discussions around the the SQE. But do you, are you sort of, I guess, a fan and one of these, you know, supportive of the the SQE? Because I know there has been a lot of debates on about it over recent sort of months. I think whenever you get sort of major changes, um, you're going to get those kickbacks. And I'm not saying that it 
it won't and hasn't already come without challenges. It has. Um, I endorse the place that it, it came from. Um, I think it's it's right. It's yet to be seen, you know, how much uh, cheaper it is to go down that route, which was was supposed to be one of the principles, I think. But but from an access perspective, which I was touching on just now, I think, um, you know, it it can't be right that you you have to be endorsed by, you know, a, a small number of law firms in order to become a qualified solicitor. And, and so I am, um, I suppose, a promoter of, of that access piece. Um, and I hope that we can make it work. Yeah, no, well, well said. And you, you've achieved um, so much. So, just a couple of final questions from from me. How do you stay motivated? Um, because you've, you know, you've you've gone to equity. You've got a wonderful family. You've kind of reached where you would like to probably like to be. Maybe I'm not sure. But how how do you self motivate? And what tips would you give to to others who have probably achieved their goals and want to kind of set future goals? It's a really good question, especially with the pandemic. You know, motivation for some people is obviously and naturally at an all-time low. Um, one of my motivators was most certainly seeing people. And, you know, in what I do in real estate finance, there was a natural circuit of events that we used to go to, to see people. And I'd really look forward to those events and that time with clients and people in the industry. And I, and I think it's been extremely challenging not having had that for just coming up to a year or a little bit more now um and that was definitely a motivator um but I think you're right you have to refocus um I'm nowhere near you know uh, hopefully my my potential um been lucky enough to be let into the equity but you know I'm I'm certainly far from at the top of it (laughs) so there's always there's always motivators and I think, uh, you know, I'm also I'm also realizing that you have to have other things outside of work. I have I have probably um, had the downfall of, of being a little bit unbalanced in the way I operate. And I'm sure that's the case with lots of lawyers and, and lots of partners. You know, you throw too many eggs into the into the, the career um, basket because you are so dedicated to the job. And during this lockdown and more recently I've realized you know there's some other things that I have to focus on you know health and fitness I've seen that in certain clients they've lost you know several stone during lockdown you know I've been very much exercise focused and you know trying to learn new skills so I think um just trying to find balance um is important and and maybe the pandemic in some senses has been um, a blessing in disguise in that sense yeah, no, absolutely. And you touched on it there in terms of maybe wanting to, to to rise even further. But have you set yourself sort of future goals or plans for your practice that you would you would you would like to achieve? Yeah, there's there's always different um, measurements, aren't there? Of you know, it can be billings or it can be are you ranked in this directory or that directory? And I think the main thing for me is you know, if the clients are happy, then I'm happy. Uh, if I've got unhappy clients, then, you know, I'm usually agonizing over that. <laughs> so um, uh, my main thing is to to stay client focused and to do the best job I can. And also, you know, to ensure that our team are happy, because equally, 
I really can't do the job without the team that we have around us, which, you know, you'll know well the importance of, of happy teams and getting people to, to stay or to move um, when they're, they're happy or unhappy. Um, yeah, I'm really thankful for the great team that we have at Phil Fisher in the banking side. They're just exceptional. Hopefully nobody will poach them, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But there's two two points I would just absolutely agree with there. You, you hit the nail on the head in terms of you have to become completely client-centric, understanding their pains, providing them continuous solutions, really helping them. But more importantly is the second point, because you can't do that without the people. So you have to care about your people. You have to invest in your people and give them time. And so, you know, people who choose to do that will keep and retain and develop staff and and do very, very well. Those who don't and choose to neglect and put clients first will lose staff. And it's proven every generation going. So absolutely agree with those two nail on the head points. So Jane, it's been a real pleasure having you on the Legally Speaking podcast. I'm sure people are going to want to follow or get in touch with you um, about some of the stuff we said and discussed today. So what's the best way or platform for people to do that? Is it LinkedIn or feel free to shout out any web links or relevant social media, um, which we'll also share with this episode for you? Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I'm an active user of LinkedIn. I get lots of messages, especially on the graduate recruitment side, um, you know, and, and graduate work that I do. Um, so p- feel free, anyone, to drop me a line on LinkedIn. That's a perfect platform. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much once again, Jane. Um, it's been really fascinating listening to your journey. It's truly, truly inspiring. So wishing you lots of continued success with your practice and future endeavours. But for now, over and out. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Legally Speaking podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want to help support us, remember to leave us a rating and review on Apple iTunes. You can also support the show and gain exclusive benefits, bonus content and much more by signing up to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Legally Speaking podcast. Thanks for listening.